Well, this morning I'm continuing to go through the book of Acts. We're nearing the end. As you can see, we're in Acts 24. There's 28 chapters in Acts, the story of the early church. So we've got about two Sundays left after today. And the section I'm going to be in is 24 through 26, but I'm really just going to focus on the first 21 verses. Basically, uh, Acts began with, of course, Jesus, who had risen from the dead, um, telling his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until he poured out his Holy Spirit and gave him God's presence inside of them. And he ascended to heaven. They waited in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit came, and then it was off. They were preaching the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection all over the place. And the church grew and grew. And now in the last few chapters, uh, Paul, who a lot of the um, Acts is focused on, has been arrested, turned over by the Jews to the Romans for stirring up all kinds of trouble. And now he's on trial in this section before three Roman leaders, Felix, Festus, and Herod Agrippa. So I'm going to read this morning just Acts 24, verses 1 through 21. And pay attention to the charges that are brought against Paul here. Here we go, Acts 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you would be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews join in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I would gladly will make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonial clean when they found me in the temple, courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So let me go back. Notice the accusation they make against Paul in verse 5. I put that in bold there. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. What do they accuse him of? They accuse him basically of sedition, of engaging in speech and conduct that incites people to rebel against the Roman authority. He's a troublemaker. Yes, on the one hand, there seem to be riots that follow Paul everywhere he goes. But on the other hand, he's not the one causing the riots. It's as he preaches the gospel, people are responding in anger, in hostility, and rioting against him. 
And he goes on to claim to them, listen, I follow God, the same that they do, but I believe that Jesus is Lord, that he rose from the dead, and my hope is in him. And if that's what's causing trouble, again, he's like, I have not done anything here worthy of any crimes. But what winds up happening in the next couple chapters is that he appeals to Caesar, and so they send him to Rome. And although it doesn't say this in the book of Acts, church history tells us that he was eventually uh, executed, that Paul was executed by Nero, the Caesar at the time, as Nero persecuted Christians. So again, on the one hand, I would say Paul's innocent of these charges. He's not a troublemaker. He's like, I went to the temple to worship. I'm just sharing the good news of Jesus, and people are rioting against me. I'm not the one causing trouble here. However, on the other hand, there must be something about this gospel message that he is preaching that is causing a great deal of hostility, that is causing people to get very upset with him and to want him dead. And we might live 2,000 years after Paul, but there's some things that have not changed there. We preach the same message that Paul preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And while some might receive it in faith, others receive it with hostility. Others would see us as Christians, as troublemakers, as offensive for proclaiming this gospel message. So what I want to do today is to unpack that a little bit. I want to just mention, this is what Jesus said about this in John 15, 18 to 21. He said, if the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. This is a very hard passage for people pleasers like myself to hear. I don't know if any of you share that people-pleasing gene, but it's hard to hear this message that Jesus is essentially saying, listen, if you're following me, there will be people who will hate you and persecute you because you follow me and because of the message you share. But it's okay because no servant is greater than his master, and if you're following me and they persecute you, don't worry, they persecuted me. They nailed me to the cross for my message. And he says, if the world loves you, if they think you're amazing and incredible, then maybe, just maybe, you don't belong to me or you're preaching a message that is so watered down it doesn't even resemble the gospel anymore. It's a hard message for people pleasers to hear who just want to be liked by everyone, who don't want to offend anyone. But he says the gospel message is offensive. Paul caused rioting everywhere he went every time he tried to preach the gospel. Jesus was nailed to a cross. And 2,000 years later, if you faithfully proclaim the gospel, you will experience this kind of opposition as well. So let me unpack the gospel message, three aspects of it, and why in our world it can be so offensive. So it begins with this, that God created us and we are accountable to him. I promise you that I will probably offend some of you today just by proclaiming what the Bible says, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So the gospel begins with this truth. In the beginning, God created everything. He created us. He designed us. And because he designed us, he knows how we should live. He knows what is right. He knows what is wrong. He knows what's good for us. He knows what is not good for us. Revelation 4.11, among many verses I could point to, said, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. 
Okay, so we begin with that. God created us. There is a God who created us, who designed us, who knows what is best, who knows what is right and wrong. And he has authority over everything. Jesus, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created us. And as it says about Jesus in Colossians 1, 15 to 16, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. So that's where we begin. The Christian message, the gospel, the good news is that first and foremost, there's a God who created us to whom we are accountable for everything. Think about automatically, what are the main implications of that? You are not God. You are not a self-created being. You are not a self-designed being. You do not have the authority to decide what is right and wrong. Are we getting off on a good start here? So if I were to proclaim a message, if you were to proclaim this message, that there is a God who created you who knows right from wrong, who designed you and knows how you are to live, right off the bat you are already offending some cultural sensibilities because we have a culture, whether or not they vocalize it, believes that we are, as the poem Invictus says, the masters of our own fate the captain of our own soul, right? We get to decide what's right and wrong. We get to decide who we are, how we live. No one can tell us otherwise. That is the cultural waters in which we swim. And so to to believe that there's a God, to proclaim that there's a God who created us, who designed us, who knows how we are to live, is offensive. Now, I'm telling you, this is a very attractive message, this message, right? It's very attractive to, to share a message that just says, hey, you can be whoever you want and do whatever you want. You get to decide what's right and wrong. You get to decide how to live. It's a very attractive message to say, there is no God. You get to be your own God. That was the message from the very beginning that the enemy had, that Satan had. It's a very attractive message. So if you find yourself attracted to a message that says, I can just throw off restraints and do whatever I want and believe whatever I want and decide for myself what's right and wrong, it makes sense. Charles Taylor called this the mark of the age of authenticity. That's a fancy word. It's a big word these days, right? Being authentic. He explained it this way. I mean the understanding of life, which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Does that sound familiar? That's what we live in, the age of authenticity. It's up to you to figure out, look inside and figure out how to live authentically to yourself, to cast off any other restraints, to cast off what previous generations or political or religious or any other authority say, and you be you. You be true to yourself. Another great term for this is expressive individualism. Carl Truman Put it this way, expressive individualism particularly refers to the idea that in order to be fulfilled, in order to be an authentic person, in order to be genuinely me, I need to be able to express outwardly or perform publicly that which I feel I am inside. Again, if you're of a certain age, you say, well, yeah, right? Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the way it is? I need to look inside, figure out who I am, and then give expression to that, and everyone else needs to affirm and applaud that. That is the cultural waters in which we swim. 
So to proclaim that there is a God who created you, who designed you, who knows how you are to live, who knows right from wrong, is already offensive, already troublesome in this culture. Now, this is more evident, I think, in the confusion around gender than anywhere else. And as I bring that up, let me be clear that I do believe there are men and women who experience gender dysphoria, who feel like they are in the wrong body, who live in that tension. And that is undoubtedly a very difficult thing to experience. And those who experience that deserve our empathy, deserve our love, not judgment and condemnation. But we're beyond just gender dysphoria. We have moved into this expressive individualism. In 2014, Facebook changed their offerings of gender that you could you know, click. They changed it to uh, 58 options for gender, which I, I'm not going to read them all. But again, this is not about gender dysphoria. This is about expressive individualism, that I get to choose and give expression to who I am. I'm a self-created, self-designed individual. And everyone has to accept that. Now, they pulled back a few years later and changed it to a field of 14 plus a custom field. But again, if you're following any of this in social media anywhere, you know that there's new pronouns being invented every week, it feels like. Again, this is not about gender dysphoria anymore. This is about expressive individualism. This is about a culture that says you get to create and design yourself. You get to be whoever it is that you want, and no one can tell you otherwise because if you're being authentic, true to who you feel on the inside, then nobody can say anything against that or they're doing violence to you. If there's no creator, then we're all just self-creators and self-designers. It's not about right and wrong. It's about personal preference. It's a world of competing tastes. This is what I like. This is what I like. This is what I feel like. This is what I feel like. There's no right or wrong. People just do as they see fit, as it said in Judges 17.6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That seems to be the cultural waters in which we are more and more swimming. So again, to preach a message that begins with the fact that there is a God who created us and designed us and knows how we are to live and knows right from wrong is already an offensive message. It's already a troubling message. It's already going to stir up riots. You know, maybe not people coming after you to actually stone you the way they did for Paul, but it could be an online riot of people coming against you to metaphorically stone you. But the truth is that there is a God who created you. And he has communicated what is right and what is wrong. And that there is a judgment day and that we are all accountable to him and we'll stand before him one day. And Jesus even said this in Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, you will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word you have spoken. That's his way of saying everything, everything that you say and do, you will be held into account before a holy God, before the judge of all the earth, before the one who created you, for whom you live. Hopefully you cringed when you read that. <laughs> I saw some cringes out there. To know that that's the level of accountability we're talking about. Not that he grades on a curve, but that everything is going to be laid bare before the judge of all the earth. So if that wasn't offensive enough, that there is a God who created us and we are accountable to him, the next element of the gospel message is this, that our sin has separated us from a holy God. 
that there is this God who is holy and that we have all rebelled against this God. We have all sinned and fallen short. Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if the Christian message is that God, the holy God, created us in his image to enjoy a relationship with him and to him we're accountable, but each one of us has sinned. Each one of us has rebelled against God. Each one of us has fallen short of his holy standard. Again, if you weren't offended enough by the fact that there's a God who decides what is right and wrong and we're not our own gods, now to say that we're all sinners who've fallen short of a holy God and we are headed not just for a physical death, but to eternal separation from that holy God. That is offensive as well in this cultural, in this cultural uh, expression right now. John three sixteen to 18. Jesus said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Often people stop there, but if you keep reading, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Again, these are Jesus' words that I'm repeating here. I'm not making this up. This is what Jesus said. And that is a strong statement right there. That here and many other places, he makes these claims that our eternal destiny depends upon how we react and respond to him. This is not something that just a good teacher says. It's not something that a sane person says, right? This is something that only God in the flesh could say, only the eternal son of God, that your eternal destiny depends upon how you respond to me. Why? Because the problem is not that you're not a good person. The problem is that We're all sinners who've fallen short of God's holy standard. None of us on our own can measure up. And someone needs to pay the penalty for our sin. And that is why Jesus came, to live the perfect life we couldn't live, to die a sacrificial death on the cross in our place, to rise again from the dead, to conquer sin and death, to offer us eternal life, forgiveness of sins. This is a troubling and offensive message, though. To claim that we're all sinners who've fallen short of God and that the only way is through Jesus? First of all, it's troubling because what I'm saying here and what Jesus is saying is that you are not perfect just the way you are. You're not perfect just the way you are. Happiness is not going to be found in just following your heart. Born this way is not a justification for anything because we're all twisted by sin. And sorry, William Shakespeare, but this above all to thine own self be true is terrible advice. Again, these are very troubling offensive messages in today's culture to say any of that. That you're not, the answer is not found in just building up your self-esteem to believe you're perfect just the way you are. The answer is not found in just following your heart because your heart never lies. To thine own self be true. Instead, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Or Jesus said in Mark 7, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from within and make a man unclean. 
And as Paul said in Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. So to proclaim a message that not only is there a God who created us, but that we have all sinned and fall short of this God, that we've rebelled against him, that we cannot save ourselves. It's an offensive, troubling message for all who just want to believe that the answer is found in greater self-esteem and following your own heart. Because it says what's wrong with the world, it's not just that there's bad leaders or that there's racism or there's corrupt politics or bad leaders. It's not that the problem is the Republicans or the Democrats. The problem goes so much deeper than that. All those things may be true, but the problem goes so much deeper than that. The problem is the sin that lies within all of our hearts, that we are all out of step with what God has created us to be like. Our sin has separated us from God. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Again, the reason we're talking about this is because Paul, as he went around preaching the gospel, caused rioting everywhere he went. And it wasn't because he was trying to stir up riots. He was trying to preach that by trusting in Jesus, by his death and resurrection, you could have eternal life. Seems like a harmless message, but it caused great opposition and hostility. And it's the same today as it is back then, that if you preach these messages, there will be people who will be hostile to you, will be opposed to you. You might stir up riots wherever you go, even if it's online. The third element of the gospel is this, that Jesus The eternal Son of God died on the cross to take the penalty we deserve for our sins, to offer us forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. The problem is sin that has separated us from a holy God. The solution is Jesus, that God has made a way to be right with him. Again, go back to John 3, 16 to 18. This time we'll focus on the first part. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So the problem is not that you're not a good enough person. If you just follow, you know, any path, you'll be a better person and then that's enough for God. The problem is that our sins have separated us from a holy God and no amount of good works can restore that relationship. And that's why Jesus came to live and die for us. Romans 3, Paul puts it this way in verses 20 to 24. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That first verse right there is basically saying that there's not many paths to God. You can't just try to be a good person to reach God. He says, no one's going to be right with God just by observing laws, by, by being good people. Rather, the law shows us that we have fallen short of God's holy standard. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. So there's a way to be right with God, he says, that doesn't depend upon how good or bad a person you are. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Do you understand what he's saying there? 
That Paul is saying that all who think that by following the laws and trying to be a good person, they can be right with God, they're mistaken. That no one on his own could ever reach that holy standard. But God has made a way to be right with him that doesn't depend on obeying the laws. It doesn't depend on your good deeds. It's about faith in Jesus, trusting that he died for your sins. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but can be justified freely by his grace. Now that, again, is a very troubling, offensive thing to say. Because the claim that Jesus makes here, that Paul makes here, that is made over and over, is that your eternal destiny depends upon how you respond to Jesus. That the problem is not you're not a good enough person. The problem is that someone needs to pay the penalty for your sin. And the only one who has done that, who's lived the perfect life, and then offered a sacrificial death on the cross was Jesus Christ. Peter said this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And Jesus put it this way in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay? Another offensive, troubling message that if Jesus is true in what he's saying, that our eternal destiny depends upon how we respond to him, that he is the only way to the Father. It's a message that is beautiful because it tells us that we're all in the same boat before God. It doesn't matter how good or bad you are. The only thing that could save us was the death of the Son of God. And that humbles us to realizing we're no better than anyone else. But then it lifts us up to show us that God loved us so much that Jesus willingly gave his life for us. And that's how loved you are. And when you know this message, when you receive this, there's such a humble confidence that comes from it. You're humble. You know you're not better than anyone else. You know you didn't earn this. You're not smarter than anyone else. But there's such a confidence in knowing that you're loved, that he has seen you at your worst. And when you were at your worst, he died for you, has forgiven it all. It's a beautiful thing, but it's also an offensive thing. It's an offensive thing to say that there are right ways and wrong ways to try to reach God. This is why Jesus, when he was leaving his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus didn't say, hey, this is good for you, but I'm working with other people in other parts of the world in other ways. So don't worry about them. Just let the, leave them alone. He's saying, no, this is a message for the whole world. So go and make disciples of all nations. And in a world that says live and let live, don't try to force your beliefs on anyone else. Don't try to convert anyone else. This is an offensive message for Jesus to say, go and make disciples of all nations. So again, this is the troubling and offensive good news of the Christian message of the gospel, that there is a God who created you, who designed you, who knows right from wrong, to whom you're accountable, to whom you will stand before one day in judgment. And the bad news is that our sin has separated us from this holy God. We have all sinned and fallen short. We've all rebelled against God, decided we want to be our own gods. We want to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. And now we're headed to eternal separation from that God. But God so loved the world that he made a way for us to be right with him that doesn't depend upon our good or bad works. But he sent his son, Jesus, 
to live the perfect life we couldn't live and to die a sacrificial death on the cross in our place, to rise again conquering sin and death, that whoever turns from their sin and puts their faith in him will have eternal life. That is the good news. And that is an offensive, troubling message. And if you are truly sharing this, there will be people who will riot. There will be people who will be offended and troubled by that. And the temptation will be to smooth the rough edges of this. To tell people they're perfect just the way they are. That they can choose to live or be whoever they want or however they want. The temptation will be to downplay sin and judgment and hell and not mention those things because they're offensive and troubling. And just say God loves everyone as they are. Or the temptation will be to smooth off the rough edges by opening the door to a salvation by works. As long as you're a good person, that's, what, that's all that matters, right? Just be a good person. But if you do those things, you will be preaching a different gospel than the one Jesus preached. You'll be making up your own way of salvation that is no way at all. You will not be doing your hearers any favors. You'll be operating out of your own fears, your own desire to be liked, your own comfort, instead of operating out of a place that is faithful to God and to his message. And again, this is a hard needle to thread, right? The needle to thread here is, on the one hand, don't water down the message until it's no gospel at all. On the other hand, don't be offensive just because you want to be a jerk, right? There's plenty of people like, yeah, that's right. You know, we need to be offensive. And that's not what we're talking about here. We need to be faithful to God. We need to be faithful to the gospel. And if it causes people to riot and if it stirs up offense and trouble because we're being faithful to him, then so be it. Jesus said that's the way it's going to be. But we're not going out intentionally trying to cause riots, intentionally trying to cause trouble or offend. First Peter 2.20 says, How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. There's no praise in being persecuted because you're just a jerk, right? But if you're being faithful to God and the gospel and people take offense, you're just following in the shoes of Jesus and Paul. And so we preach in humility the good news, knowing, as he said in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that humble confidence, we're saved by grace, not by works. We go out, we proclaim the gospel, knowing that it will probably cause offense, it will cause trouble for us. But that's okay. As long as you're being faithful to him, you're following in the footsteps of Jesus and Paul. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for the ways we try to please people and be liked by men and women. We pray that you would forgive us for the times that we stir up trouble just because we want to be troublemakers, Lord. Help us to be faithful to you in preaching the true gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. To be courageous, to love our neighbor enough to tell them the truth. And if people take offense, Lord, help us to Take courage that we are following in your footsteps, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.